Amen. One thing I had to do before leaving for India late next Sunday night was exchange some money. And I looked for the best exchange rate, and I knew it could change after I ordered the rupees, and it did. The Canadian dollar value of 5,000 rupees went up by $1 in 36 hours. So 5,000 rupees was worth 111 Canadian dollars on the day of the transaction. 5,000 rupees will go a long way in India, a lot further than $111 will go in Canada. The money changer was friendly, and he was efficient, and he sent me off with, enjoy your travel. It was easy. The whole purpose of the money changers and livestock dealers in the Jerusalem temple is to make things easy. If a worshiper brings a bird or goat or bullock for sacrifice, the animal has to pass inspection before it's declared an acceptable offering. And a lot can happen on the road up to Jerusalem. A spotless lamb won't be spotless when it gets to Jerusalem. It may turn up lame from dirt in its hoof. Or the Levite on duty might be in a bad mood and just ready to reject everything. So why not make pre-approved birds and beasts available on site? For those who have cash, of course. Cash. Those who have cash have Roman imperial currency, coins with graven images on them, the emperor's divine countenance. The temple mints its own coinage, image-free, and it's available for money changers commissioned by the high priest, free to charge whatever commission they like. It's easy, and it works. The business of the temple proceeds with efficiency. Jesus doesn't approve. Last Sunday at that wedding in Cana, Jesus said it wasn't his hour yet, not his time to reveal to all who can see and hear who he really is. He makes a miracle at that wedding, but really only the servants see the change. Today, it's time. His hour has begun. And it all starts in a very public place, the place the prophets said and the people believe is the center of the universe. It takes time to make a whip of cords. Jesus gets ready for action. And in John's Gospel, this is Jesus' Jerusalem debut, and it's quite a show. This is why John puts this story at the beginning. The other Gospels tell the story near the end. But all four Gospels see it as an intentional act. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it forces the hand of the powers that kill Jesus. In John's Gospel, it tells us right up front, one who has more authority than any of those powers has arrived. Now, Christians have struggled with this story for centuries. For generations, the church has read this story and other parts of John's gospel to justify anti-Judaism, anti-Semitism. This is a Jews are bad, Jesus is good story, according to a lot of traditions. 
Christians have also heard this story and have concluded it's a sign that Jesus was like one of the old prophets, and he was raging like a prophet and demanding the end of the sacrificial system and the fall of the temple. Then closer to home, generations of ministers and sessions have declared that Jesus' cleansing of the temple means no sale of tickets on Sunday, no bake sales, no Christmas fairs, no rummage sales, no outside rentals. They say the church must rely 100% on the sacrificial givings of its members. And more recently, Jesus in the temple has been painted as a crusader against economic injustice and as a champion of the poor. And, and well, the money changing in livestock sales are going on in the outer courts of the temple. The place where people who have somehow fallen off the membership roll can take a small step back. The place where foreigners, strangers, outsiders to Palestine can come in. The place where women can gather and pray, or as many sought, listen to the men pray and be better for it. This was the place for people, people who were not already insiders. This is where prospective converts to Israel's religion can look on and learn and be evangelized. This was the place surrounded by porticos where rabbis, including Jesus, sat and taught. But it's been taken over for the convenience of people who are already insiders. And Jesus comes from up north, a place that is so far from Jerusalem in many ways. A place where religion is about the word of God, not the blood of sacrifice, or not just the blood of sacrifice. Where the prophets of old are honored, and the priests down south in Jerusalem are, well, necessary once a year. And people of Jesus' station in life and of his family's station in life lived without cash for generations. And now, one by one, they're being forced out of their own little patches of land, their own little businesses, forced to do business and to work for wealthy land owners, Roman patrons. And the few coins they earn, they must give back to feed their families. Often it's the food they farmed on what used to be their family's land. And if a man can get away to make the obligatory annual trip to the temple, he's got to have cash to buy the required offering. So that means something back home has to be given up. And he's, it's not likely that he's able to raise his own pigeons or goats anymore. So. What Jesus finds in the temple represents a change in worship from an offering from the heart, something that you raise and prepare on your own and give as a true sacrifice from your own heart to a transaction from the purse. It's, it's moved from first-hand participation in worship to third-hand dealing. And I can imagine this is all on Jesus' mind as he braids that whip. But he has more on his mind. He's looking ahead, and this is only a beginning. Now, I don't know if you picked up on this, but this 
story about Jesus and the money changers and livestock sellers in the temple, it comes to us in that wonderful season of the year. We're drafting the budget. Last Tuesday, elders heard about how Glenview's assets are managed. The auditor arrives on Tuesday. The tension in the office is thick. And we're getting ready for the annual congregational meeting when we'll, we'll hear a lot and talk some about money, about the business of the church. We'll all hear a lot, and not just at the meeting, about the need to add to what we contribute on the plate and through par from as many sources as we can tap. God trusts us to be good stewards of what God provides and to make the best use of our assets whether we measure those assets in dollars or square feet. This is a magnificent temple. And like the Jerusalem temple, it's expensive to maintain. And outside this space, we have inner and outer courts that also cost a lot to keep up. And we know many churches have downsized, they've redeveloped property, we know many have closed, often because keeping up their buildings exhausted their resources. And we also know that there are temples around that are bigger than ours that still stand. They're falling apart, and just a handful of people hang on to them for as long as they can. And we look around us, and we see evidence of the trend that all historic churches are dealing with, fewer worshipers and fewer regular contributors. And I do regularly hear from some of you about the churches that you visit or that you have attended with your grandchildren, and those churches are growing. Well, yes, they are. Praise God. But the leaders of those churches will tell you, growing a church is expensive. And when the church grows, unless the new worshipers come from other churches, it takes a long time to teach them, to shape them into regular givers. And the goal in these congregations is often very clearly and unapologetically stated as sacrificial giving. So these growing churches, their sanctuaries may be fuller than ours on Sunday morning. Their inner and outer courts are also even busier than ours, and ours are busy. But this temple isn't empty, echoing or silent on Sundays. Our inner and outer courts some days overflow into this space with people who choose to come here, like to come here, and respect us for our welcome. Glenview is unique, unique in many ways, as so many of you remind me all the time, and I already know. But one of those ways is that we are a neighborhood church, and our neighbors, most of them anyway, really like having us in the neighborhood. Now, yes, most who use our facilities pay to use them, but that income is important to us so we can keep on doing business. A growing church is a serving church. Hospitality is a high priority. 
and wise stewardship of all resources is a must. And that's true for a congregation that's growing in numbers. It's true for a congregation that's growing in depth and breadth in service and hospitality. Now, these words are usually attributed to William Temple, who was Archbishop of Canterbury in the 40s. And I can believe he said this. The church is the only organization in the world that exists solely for the benefit of non-members. Now, I think Jesus felt that way about the temple. Even the worship of those who were members had a purpose that reached beyond the members. Jesus agreed with the prophets on that point. And Jesus once described his own purpose this way, and I remember it a lot of Sundays when I'm sitting in my little semi-hidden seat there because I have the best view of the top of the founder's window. And so I remember Jesus said, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all people to myself. The business of the church is service and hospitality offered to everyone, those who are already members and those who aren't members yet. It's true, an outward focus through open doors is only possible when we do take good care of one another. But it's also true that those doors close in on us when taking care is all we do. I used to believe, and there's a lot of church literature about this, that maintenance and mission were opposites. They had nothing to do with each other. When maintenance means survival, fending off all change, it is a sign that any sense of mission has been lost. But there are times when maintenance is mission. And when congregations realize how blessed we are with resources to make service and hospitality possible. And this is what we do so well. And when we who are part of this kind of congregation understand that we are also blessed with the ability to support our mission together, even sacrificially, Amen. Glory to God.